says Muhammad Ali, is won or lost far away from witnesses, behind the lines, in the gym, out there on the road, long before I dance under those lights. And of course, he's talking about boxing and the hours and days and weeks of preparation he needed to do before he stepped through the ropes, under the bright lights, and threw or took those first punches. And it's a quote that's true for the Christian faith as well. Uh, it is what is done in the hidden times, alone with God, that enables our success as we step out towards God's preferred future for the vision, cheers mate, the vision that God has for us. And in our two readings today, uh, this morning, we see this hidden preparation time result in the purposes of God being articulated and advanced. After his 40 days in the wilderness <clears throat> and really 30 years of obscurity, Jesus steps out into the light. He steps up in his hometown synagogue and announces his mission as Messiah, quoting from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And of course we saw that that was a very risky and dangerous step for him to take. One that was met, met first with amazement and then with anger and resistance. And Nehemiah, as we saw last week, after hearing about the desperate state of those who had returned from exile in Jerusalem itself, spending an intense period of five, four or five months in prayer and preparation. And then when the time was right, willing to risk stepping out before the Persian king, Artaxerxes, with that grief and sorrow that he felt in his heart etched on his face. At Hope Whangarei, we have a vision of not being a church in decline, but rather a vision to be a flourishing Christian community. And we see our mission, how we're going to achieve that vision, as connecting people to God and to one another. And at the beginning of this new year, a year where after COVID we are wanting to refocus on that vision and mission, we're turning to the scriptures and in particular to Nehemiah for wisdom and counsel of seeing that vision and mission be a reality. We saw last week that vision and mission start by trusting our questions with compassion for people. And it begins and it ferments and it develops in constant and consistent prayer. But at some stage, it has to be publicly spoken and articulated. It has to be cast before people. And today we're looking at Nehemiah risking going public with his vision, with his mission, and seeing what that has to say to us. So let's turn and look at the text and then draw out some thoughts as to how it applies to us. Now remember the book of Nehemiah is primarily his journal. He is telling us his story. And it's set in the period of the restoration of Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon. 
And of course, Nehemiah is a Jew. And he is in the city of Susa, which is the winter palace of the Persian king. And it's during the reign of King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah's brother, Nanani, gave him a report that even though there had been many people who had returned to Jerusalem, that they were in a desperate state and the walls of the city were broken down. And Nehemiah's heart was filled with compassion and pain for the returnees in the city. So he spent an intense time in prayer. And then the chapter finished uh, with this important fact about Nehemiah, that he was the cupbearer to the king. And that sets the scene for our reading today. Like all good journals, Nehemiah starts a new entry with the date. It is the Jewish month of Nisan, four to five months after chapter one. And Nehemiah is going about his job. He's the cupbearer to the king. So he brings wine to the king. But this time he comes with the sadness he feels openly expressed on his face. And you know, this is a bold and dangerous move on his behalf because how courtiers were to appear before the king and the Persian society was a matter of much importance. There was a lot of etiquette. And it was dangerous not to turn up in the right way. And you couldn't be sad in front of the king. And you could also uh, imagine that it would be quite a matter of importance for the king because um, you could imagine that here is his cupbearer responsible for tasting his food and responsible for his safety turning up and, and looking nervous or full of grief. You know, that might be viewed with great suspicion. Why are you looking so sad? Nehemiah's timing of the month of Nisan is also something that scholars speculate about. It was the new year for Persia, so it would have been a festive time. And Nehemiah's sadness would have been more pronounced, more, more different than everybody else around them in their festive time. But also, uh, New Year was a time when the emperor would also grant requests from people. So Nehemiah may have planned his approach for this very time. And we see the king is concerned about Nehemiah's obvious sadness and sees it's not that he's sick, which of course you can imagine uh, is foremost in Artaxerxes' mind as he's just tasted the wine. Is there something wrong with the wine? No. But Artaxerxes sees that it's a matter of grief and personal sorrow. And Nehemiah has a very human reaction. When he's noticed by the king, he's very afraid. This is a dangerous situation. We might not get that in our society today. But you know what? It's an answer to his prayer. An opening to share his concern and plan for the rebuilding of Jerusalem with Artaxerxes. And then Nehemiah's response to Artaxerxes is couched in very careful, thought-out terms. Now remember, Artaxerxes is the one who had ordered all rebuilding in Jerusalem stopped because he'd had reports of planned revolt. And and it's kind of dangerous to sort of uh, tell the king you want to change his mind about something. And so he speaks in language that the king would understand. He uses the honorific, long live the king. 
And he says that he's grieved because the place where his ancestors are buried lies in ruins. Now, in the ancient Near East, such places were important. Your ancestry, your whakapapa was important. And where they were buried were places to be venerated and honoured. And it was a matter of great shame for such places not to be cared for. You might go to an old cemetery and see them overgrown and the gravestones pushed over. Um, And that's sad. Uh, But you also notice that he's very careful that he doesn't focus on Jerusalem. In fact, he doesn't name his city at all. You know, as well as praying for five months, I think Nehemiah had also been carefully thinking this move through. You know, he had been preparing for this moment and for his mission. He had been weighing the words that he would use very carefully. The king is moved by Nehemiah's appearance and his words because it would have really hit him home. This is something that he was concerned about as well. And so uh, the king asks Nehemiah, well, what is it you want? Now, Nehemiah stops and quickly prays. His consistent and insistent prayer life does not stop him throwing out a final quick prayer in this moment, what my mum used to call arrow prayers, normally around Dear God, can I please have a car park? You know? But here, he's a request for help of the king of heaven as he sets out his vision before the king of Persia. And then he's quite bold. He asks to be sent to the city to be able to rebuild the walls where his ancestors are buried. In verse 6, as we await Artaxerxes' reply... There's this little aside. And Nehemiah tells us that the king or the emperor is sitting with his empress or queen beside him. Now scholars suggest that this means the scene would have changed from a formal banquet and feast where the queen would not be present into a more informal setting where she was. You know, Artaxerxes has invited Nehemiah into a more private setting so he can listen to him. And Artaxerxes can... Focus on listening to Nehemiah. Now, Old Testament scholar Hannah Harrington also says that it's quite possible that this queen had some influence in this situation. You see, Artaxerxes' queen, wait for it, Damaspia, was an influential character. And you can see that in the Persian Empire there were influential women. And you also get insights into the danger of how you approach the king in public in the book of Esther. Where Artaxerxes' father Xerxes, his queen, his first wife, Vashti, refuses his demand to appear at a feast. She's a 21st century woman. She is not going to be objectified. She's not just a sex object to be paraded in front of my husband's drunk friends like some sort of prized cow. And she gets banished, divorced, kicked out. And then Esther, who replaces her, also risks the king's ire by, ironically, appearing without being summoned. Vashti didn't appear when she was summoned. Esther appeared without being summoned to beseech Xerxes to save her people. 
Well, back to the story. Artaxerxes is willing to allow Nehemiah to go. He wants to know for how long. See, Nehemiah is a servant, a slave, and obviously well-respected, but the king is not willing to allow him to simply leave. So Nehemiah had obviously done some planning, and he sets a time for his return. And, you know, it gives us some insight into the quick pace. When you read through the book of Nehemiah, there is a quick pace set in the rest of the book for the rebuilding to occur. There's a time limit. And spoiler alert, it's not until chapter 6 that we find that, in actual fact, Artaxerxes sent him as the governor of Judah for 12 years. Now we see that Nehemiah had been doing some other careful planning and research in in anticipation of this eventuality. And what one commentator says is, uh, let's get this in writing moment. He asks for letters to be drawn up to get safe passage from the governors of the Transjordan region. So they know he is being sent by the king. You know, because they are the ones who told the king that Jerusalem was planning to revolt in the first place. And, you know, we see the wisdom of Nehemiah's move here because at the end of the reading today, two of those governors, Sanballat and Tobiah, are upset that someone has come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Nehemiah realizes that he needs resources, so he also asks for a letter to the keeper of the royal forest to get the wood he needs. You see, wood is a precious commodity in what was the arid Near East. Uh, And he wants it for three specific tasks. For the beams of the citadel or the fortress by the temple, for the city walls, and for the residence he would occupy. You know, Nehemiah's initial time was going to be long enough that he needed to build or at least repair a place to live. And Nehemiah finishes his account by acknowledging that all this is granted because of the fact that God was with him that the king granted his request. The hand of God had been on this situation. And Nehemiah providentially was in a position of being trusted by the king and had access to him. And he chose the right time to speak up and braved articulating his vision. And God answered his prayer. Okay, what light does that shed on us today, here and now? Well, the first thing is that we see that for Nehemiah, prayer and planning, petition and trusting in God and being prepared and strategizing and weighing words and all those sorts of things are not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. And often people will see a call to pray about vision and mission as being, you know, stepping away from reality. Stepping away from the reality of the hard work of planning and preparing and strategizing and doing the nuts and bolts. John White speaks of the frustration he often felt working with spiritual dreamers who never got down to the nuts and bolts of getting something done. But well, he also, in the same breath, speaks of the difficulty of working with people in Christian organizations and leaders who simply rely on a sort of baptized form of business management without realizing the need for prayer. You know, the two, planning and prayer, go hand in hand. Either one by themselves does not lead to change, does not lead to vision becoming reality. Pete Gregg, in his book, How to Pray, sums it up well when he says, our primary privilege as God's children 
is to ask audaciously and repeatedly for everything we need, expecting him to answer. Answer naturally, and that's where we come in and we do the work and the planning and all the things that need to be done. Or supernaturally. And we see the blend of the two in Nehemiah's experience in our reading this morning. The second thing is that, yes, there is a time when vision and our understanding of God's preferred future needs to be articulated and brought out into the open for it to come to fruition. But that's often quite a dangerous and challenging time. And we see that in the readings we had today. Last week I spoke of trusting our questions to move us to not be satisfied with the way things are. But often when we articulate a vision and plan, it can find itself smothered by questions. The who question. As Jesus articulates the longed-for vision of the kingdom of God in front of the people who knew him the best, the response was, well, who are you? Aren't you just the carpenter's son? And you know, Artaxerxes could have easily simply replied, you are my servant and you are staying here and focusing on me. You know, as we look at that vision of being a flourishing Christian community, the Hugh, the Hugh, sorry, Hugh, <laughs> the who question equally can come up. You know, we're an older congregation. How can we grow young again? You know, I've got a great idea. Why don't you do it, Howard? <laughs> you know, the who question. Maybe God's speaking to you. Israel in exile felt the same thing. They felt broken and dead. In fact, Ezekiel in his vision of the valley of the dry bones is asked by God, do you believe these dry bones can come alive? Do you? Yes. And the wind of the Spirit blew. You know, Ezekiel was told to prophesy to the winds and the Spirit moved and the bones rattled. And came alive. We can forget the wonderful narrative of Scripture, you know, that God actually uses the non obvious, uh, the ordinary, those that you wouldn't think would make much of a difference to achieve His plans and His purposes. It shows His might and His power and His sovereignty and His grace and His love. Then we have the how question. What about the resources? You know, I can imagine that weighed very heavily on Nehemiah's mind as he thought about the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. How are we going to do the things that God calls us to do? You know, often the visions that God gives are big. And they are beyond us. They reflect the bigness and the grandeur of our God rather than our own limited ability and capacity and imagination. Nehemiah was told the people are in a desperate, depressed state. But he trusts God to provide. You know, and Nehemiah shows us that even, you know, in the midst of that depressed state, God is able to provide. I mean, the resources of the king of Persian, Persia are given to Nehemiah uh, through the presence and the providence of God. And often the question of how will stop vision from becoming a reality if we let it. I'm always reminded of a saying of a mentor of mine who says, money follows 
mission. It's not the other way around. If it is a God idea, not just a good one, and it's focused on furthering the kingdom of God, not just personal empire building, then God provides. Money follows mission. Get out and do the mission and you see what happens. It's interesting that when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, um, they also have two different responses to the offer of an armed guard for their journey to Jerusalem. Ezra says, God is with me. And he turns down the, the armed escort because he thinks that that's not putting enough faith in God. Whereas Nehemiah says, well, God's hand is on me. And the king has sent uh, you know, these, this officer and the cavalry with me. You know, which is a sign that he is a high official. He's the, uh, he's the governor of Judah. How can also often derail vision and mission? Because we struggle with the answers to the particulars. We can get caught up in the particulars. You know, in the, in the little details. Raymond Brown warns, you can get caught up in the particulars and also in our preferences and lose sight of working together for the common good. And sadly, I've seen that in lots of churches and Christian organisations. And it stops vision. For change to happen, for us to journey from the way things are, and remember Ronald Reagan famously said, status quo is just Latin for the mess we are in to what can be God's preferred future, the kingdom of God vision for what we should be like. You know, there needs to be a time to speak out what we believe God is calling us to do. I've just done a ministry development plan and I found it really challenging and I thought, I don't want to do this. But, but as I looked back on it now, I see God used that to give me a fresh sense of vision of where I need to be in terms of physical, spiritual, intellectual, and relational well-being to fulfill the calling that I still believe I have from God. I'm going to stand on this wall. Clearly articulating that meant it has started to become a reality and I've been able to make some very concrete steps in that direction. Perhaps going from the sublime to the ridiculous on a, on a grander scale. While we've still got a long way to go in terms of equal rights in this world, you know, the change and improvement of a, a little-known black Baptist minister from the segregated south of the United States standing on the steps of the Capitol building in Washington and daring to say, I have a dream, brought kingdom of God change. As Martin Luther King Junior dared to stand up and say that. I have a vision from God. The praying and the planning over a long period of time are important as we articulate, as we keep on articulating the vision and as we keep on working uh, towards it. A, a, you know, a personal God-given vision or goal for our lives and corporately as a church. And how we articulate and cast that vision is significant, but what speaks to us most from the scripture today is that as we put the effort in, as we do our part, what makes even the impossible achievable is the presence, leading, and enabling of God. The Spirit of God is upon us. 
upon me, says Jesus, quoting Isaiah. The same spirit that is upon us today. Because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all who believe. The Spirit of God is with us to see the kingdom of God break into the realms of humanity. Nehemiah puts it like this. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. And when I was writing this message, I came upon a quote in my daily reading, which I think encapsulates that. From the first day of creation to the last chapter of Revelation, Scripture describes God breaking in, invading time and space, interrupting and disrupting. And I want to add to that, bringing change and renewal and restoration and hope. Because you see, in the end, the fight is not won, sorry, the fight is won, because it's in God's hands. (laughs) Not just ours. There we go, that's good. Well done, guys. Uh, there, There is, I'll give you a chocolate on the way out if you show me that. Great, but that is it. That's the reality. It's in God's hands. And we go about doing what God has called us to do, trusting that God is with us. Amen? Amen. Let's just be still for a minute. Maybe there are personal goals, personal visions, dreams that you know God has put in your heart that may be fermenting, or maybe they have lied dormant. They've been knocked about by the who and the how question. Maybe today there's that sense of God wanting to reignite those. vision is to be a flourishing Christian community. Our mission is to connect people to God and with one another. Lord God, we pray. Lord of heaven, we pray for your help. In Jesus' name. Amen.